let's remind ourselves of a couple things about the parables. The first thing is that Jesus, through parables, uh, was telling um, these uh, various aspects of the kingdom of heaven in the way that he did in order to separate devoted followers from casual observers, right? He was saying, those who are devoted to me will pursue further. Those who are, well, whatever, Jesus, uh, that's fine. Uh, They wouldn't pursue further. So he's separating the devoted followers to himself. This is what he said to his disciples when they asked, why are you speaking to the people in parables? Why aren't you speaking more clearly to these people? But another thing is that once he had separated out these devoted followers to himself, he was teaching his devoted followers lessons about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven like? I love Jesus. He always comes to us in such a way that is understandable. And that's how he came to his people. He used simple, everyday illustrations that would be easy for his disciples to understand about the kingdom of heaven and would be easy for them to transfer. What is a disciple? That's a devoted follower. So if you want to think of a new word for disciple, devoted follower of Jesus. So He was telling it in a simple way so that they could transfer to the next generation of devoted followers, disciples, who would transfer to the next generation so that every person uh, on earth would hear the good news, every nation would hear, and that he would be able to come back and take us all uh, to his eternal kingdom. You see, he's speaking principles of the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of heaven, it was there and it had arrived at Jesus' time. It is here today, but the kingdom of heaven is an everlasting kingdom. And uh, so Jesus is preparing us. Aren't you glad that Jesus prepares us and doesn't choose to, as we spoke about last week, he prepares us uh, for the future and what we're what is required of us rather than just you know, giving it to us all at the last minute. So these parables are teaching us principles of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Today, we're going to look at one of the, um, if not the most famous, one of the most famous parables called the parable of the Good Samaritan. When I was in high school, (laughs) yay, barely many decades ago, uh, we had three main factions at my school. There were other factions. There were Uh, The nerds, kind of like me, and different ones. But there were three main factions. They were called the freaks. Yes, they were. (laughs) The jocks. And the ropers. Some of you from from my home state of Texas, if you're around, would understand a little more what this means. I'll get into that with you for a moment. The freaks were the heavy metal guys, you know, wearing black. And it was not too much different, maybe, than these days. But they were wearing black. They were listening to ACDC and Black Sabbath and all of these different, you know, uh, heavy metal bands which, which sprung up. They had tattoos, earrings, uh, you know, the various deal. And uh, <clears throat> they were, uh, um, yeah, they were one group. The Freaks, they were called. And they, they enjoyed this name. This was at my high school. I don't know what they were called at yours. There were the Jocks. I think we know who the Jocks are, right? The Jocks. They were the guys... Uh, that, and gals uh, that played sports, and particularly, you know, the the um, the football players, basketball players. They always they dated the beautiful, uh, according to them, beautiful girls. They were the in crowd. They were, you know, uh, <clears throat> I was not a jock. 
But, oh well. Uh, so the jocks, <laughs> um, and they dated the drill team girls and such. Now, the ropers. Now, that's the one you're like, what in the world? You know, I, I guess it came from the term lasso, right? The ropers. These were the cowboys, you know? And we have quite a few cowboys in Texas. Um, <clears throat> in college, I had to ask uh, a few people to remove their 10-gallon hats so I could see the front of the uh, screen. But anyway, that's a little exaggerated. But these ropers were the cowboys, and um, uh, they wore Wrangler jeans, right? Uh, and uh, for some reason, they were creased right down the front here at the bottom, you know. And uh, they had, uh, what else did they have? Well, they wore cowboy hats. They had huge belt buckles. You know, it might have said Bob or Billy Bob or, you know, Billy Bob Bill or whatever it said. And then, but then they always had, they had the circle on the back where the dip can went, you know, the skull, the Copenhagen, whatever that may be. I tried that once. Puked my face off. Uh, I don't know how they do that, but <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> it's back. Uh, so the, you had the jocks, the freaks, and the ropers, okay? And every now and then in class or when you're walking down the halls in school, somebody would say, hey, man, uh, the freaks and the jocks are going to meet in the alley behind the school, and they're going to have a rumble today. You know, they're going to get after it today. Somebody did something. And so there'd be a heightened measure of tension, you know? I would be figuring out the quickest route to go home. <laughs> I wanted nothing to do with it, but uh, others really got into that. And... Um, just one moment here. Sorry there. Uh, all is good. So the, you had the jocks, the freaks, the ropers. So, so right during class, uh, you'd hear about these guys are going to fight, you know, and all that. And then uh, after class, a big rumble would ensue. And uh, the interesting thing about that is they had prejudices. Um, you know, each of these three groups had a unique set of values. What they viewed as most important. Each one had a turf that they were protecting. Each one had judgments against the other group. And uh, it just, it, it resulted in uh, outright violence at times. Have you ever noticed, no matter where you come from, that, um, that there's uh, a distance and uh, that there's inevitably another group you tend to look down upon or you tend to be envious of? Northerners, I come from the South, I've been here 15 years, but Northerners tend to look down on Southerners for being simple-minded <laughs> and slow. I've gotten the look at times when people hear my Texas accent. Uh, but but uh, Southerners tend to look down on or resent North, Northerners, Northeasterners for uh, their being uptight and uh, not being friendly. I've found both of these are not exactly true. That's what a stereotype is. Um, you got the Red Sox fans hate the New York Yankees fans. You know, I've always been amazed there when you ever seen those shirts, you know, Yankees stink. It doesn't really say that, but I'm not going to say that word this morning. I'm like, well, what a nice thing to say. What a nice identity to have in life. You know, Yankees. Anyway, the Yankees hate the Red Sox. The Red Sox hate the Yankees. You know, countries have prejudices against one another, don't they? I mean, it doesn't take us long to see that. And even within countries, prejudice is going on. And these, these kind of result in, uh, it's a nature of mankind. It's the nature of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. It's as old as Cain killing his brother Abel in the garden. And uh, it, it, is, it can result, these animosities can result in 
terrorism, skirmishes, or all-out war. And you see it throughout life. Um, you know, it's, it's a cycle of cliques, factions, insiders, outsiders, rich, poor. Uh, it's interesting that even this week, I, don't, I was at McDonald's getting my 49-cent ice cream cone right down the street if you want it. I love them. And I looked on and Oprah Winfrey's talking about how she racism against her. She got 40 billion, whatever. I don't know how much she has. And she's still dealing with it. Everything she could do to be, or she's speaking that she's dealing with that. It is a problem of mankind. Well, anyway, this is the issue at hand when Jesus talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about um, the way... Uh, that, that we tend to look at one another, how and who we consider our neighbors and how that is. Let's look right now at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And I want you to read along with me. You can look in your Bible. You can look up here on the screen. Or you can look in your Bible app, whatever you would like. But follow along with me. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he, this man, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, <clears throat> but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. So this particular parable... Uh, anyway, I'm sorry. And Jesus says here, um, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, why did Jesus choose a Samaritan for this parable? Um, well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> the Samaritans were the uh, hated or despised, looked down upon, half-breed Israelites that the Israelites felt were impure because they had suffered or they had made the wrong choice of marrying the idol-ridden groups that were around them. They were a compromised group. They were hated. I would say they, it, it wasn't even allowed, as we will see later, for uh, an Israelite even to have um, uh, a conversation uh, and interact with them. They were considered unclean. You see, um, Jesus chose a Samaritan um, to shake up this teacher of the law. You see, this teacher was trying to 
make himself feel better. He was trying to justify himself. He was saying, hey, what must I do? He had the wrong idea there. What must I do is kind of the wrong idea. But he was asking and Jesus gave him the law and he said, yeah, I've done all this. But he knew in his heart something wasn't right. He said, and then they had this conversation about loving your neighbor. And then he still knew that something wasn't quite right in his spirit. He knew. He said, who is my neighbor? But what he was trying to do was justify himself. And Jesus was shaking him up. If, if you could really look at it, this is akin to a story. This is similar to a story. Who goes to Boston College in this room? Anybody? Boston College. This is, this is like Jesus saying to you, one day a man was walking down the uh, streets of Boston College in the rarefied climate of Chestnut Hill. And he was walking along and some robbers came up, stole his money, you know, and uh, beat him up. And he was laying on the side of the road and a Notre Dame, uh-oh, Right, A Notre Dame fighting Irish student came by and was helping him and helping him out and taking care of his wounds and encouraging him. All the Boston College students just walked right on by. That doesn't make you happy, does it? That shakes you up a little. Think of, uh, of uh, your rival, so to speak, someone you don't like. Well, Jesus was using this kind of a parable, you know, uh, to express to them uh, that to actually love your neighbor is is not just to love those who are similar to you, but the true love of a neighbor goes beyond human ability. The true love of a neighbor is uh, who goes beyond to love everyone around us is supernatural ability. Jesus was binding this man, so to speak, over to his sin, where he saw and understood his sinful heart. You know, Jesus... Um, is, is expressing it's way beyond human ability to do that, to love someone not like you. It requires change of heart, what we might call repentance, turning the other way. Um, I want to say this. It's natural, okay? Remember this. It's natural to treat those who are similar to us with love and compassion. You ain't, you ain't or you aren't doing anything special by loving someone similar to you. Jesus said it himself. He said even the sinners, even those who don't care, love their own, you know. Um, honor among thieves, as they say. But it is supernatural to treat those who are different than us, racially, economically, whatever kind of other ways, those who are different, those who have offended us in the past, or who are our natural enemies with love and concern. This is the true indicator of faith. And this is what it boils down to. Listen to this one. Repeat it after me. Jesus is conveying this truth. To love God is to love your neighbor. Say it after me. Okay, that's simple. No matter who they are. Now that sounds simple on the face of it. But it's not that simple. It's an actual impossibility. We need to look at the context here of Jesus and what he is speaking into. We look at the Jewish context that Jesus was speaking into we, to understand the revolutionary idea of what Jesus was giving these um, Israelites. Here's the deal. Jesus is establishing a new covenant view of holiness versus the old covenant view of holiness that the Jewish people had held for thousands of years. You see, holiness equals well, let's do a little math equation. God is holy, right? 
God is love, right? It's, it's written, I can show you the scriptures that, that proclaim that. But God equals holy, God equals love. Well, what do we know in math? I think, it, I don't remember what the theory is, but if God equals love and God equals holy, holy equals love. Do you know that you walking in holiness and purity and righteousness is one of the most loving things you can do for people around you? Don't say, oh, it's only my sin. It only hurts me. No, our own holiness. So anyway, I want to I get a little glimpse here of what Jesus is talking into so we can understand the new approach that's been here since the coming of Jesus and the declaring of the kingdom of God. The old covenant approach, here it is. When God called Abraham to himself and when God ultimately gave Moses the law upon the mountain, here's what it was. Holiness meant complete separation for God's people, right? It meant that um, the people of God who were Israel at that time were to be completely separate from the nations around them. They were not to, their holiness um, was not to interact with those around them in Joshua 23, 6 through 8, it says, Be very strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve or bow down, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. You see, the old covenant approach was don't associate with them. Why? Because the law... That which was given, do not lie, do not kill, do not, you know, all the do nots and some of the do's. It was not able, it was not given in a life-giving manner. It was just a law that, that man's heart couldn't change. And so the Israelites, in one sense, couldn't be trusted with interacting with their neighbors, in one sense. They had to stay away from their sinful neighbors because it would lead them into idol worship and into serving other gods. And so they were to stay away from the nations around them. They were to stay away from these sinful people. You see, these nations that were around them were idol worshipers. And the first commandment of God on that mountain was, love the Lord your God. So uh, the Jews viewed their neighbors, their true neighbors, as other Jews. That's who the Jews, that's what this man coming up to Jesus was. Who's my neighbor? He's saying, just tell me. Keep the status quo. It's the Jews, right? And Jesus said, uh, no. <laughs> and no, it includes your hated half-brother, uh, the Samaritans. And it includes, oh, it gets worse for the Jews. And it gets worse for all of us. But it gets better, ultimately, because God sets us free. Now, the new covenant approach is this. With the coming of Jesus. And he's declaring, as he's doing this with all of his parables, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. It has arrived. This is what it looks like. Well, Jesus is announcing a new kingdom approach. And guess what he's saying? Come on, this makes me happy. With the coming of Jesus and resurrection life, holiness... Or love, we're equating those today. True holiness, true love is meant to penetrate. You see, holiness in the old covenant was meant to isolate so that you were not stained by the sinfulness of others. This holiness now with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection has an internal force for us to, in, uh, to integrate an internal force in order for us to penetrate society with God's grace. You see, in the old covenant, there was nothing we could do but be 
be sinned upon, so to speak, because we didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. But in the New Testament, yes, of course, people lived in holiness and righteousness. God showed throughout Israel's history the loving of the poor, the caring for the foreigner. It's not that there weren't hints of it throughout the Old Testament. And that's probably what caused this man asking Jesus to really think about it. Because it did say, take care of foreigners. The Israelites treated slaves better than the others around them. I'm not saying that's good enough. But at that time, they did have a sense of loving your neighbor. But it was in seed form. It was not seen for the way we're talking. Now, let's look at Jesus' life very quickly and how he loved his neighbor. Okay? And this is what Jesus is calling us to. This is what Jesus is calling us to. If we live in truly holy lives, and that does mean free of sin, by the way. Uh, if we live truly holy lives, we will love by engaging and, and treating everyone as our neighbor. So let's look at it this way. Jesus loved his neighbor regardless of racial differences. Jesus loved his neighbor regardless. This is the woman at the well. We don't have time to go into this uh, entire thing, but it is in John chapter 4, 4 through 26. Jesus is traveling through Samaria with his friends. He sits down at a well. His disciples, his friends go off to buy food. And he is not supposed to be talking to the Samaritan people, right? In the Jewish understanding of that day, which had been... God's understanding had been perverted by man's hearts, right? The purpose for not speaking to her was not out of hatred in God's heart. It was, it was to have a light and a witness to all nations. But Jesus broke the rules. And he engaged this woman in a conversation. And he said, could you give me water? And she said, you know, first thing is, what in the world are you talking to me for? You know? That's the underlying dialogue here. And as this woman was at the well, Jesus engaged her. And her his um, friends, his disciples came back and they were like, check it out. Jesus is talking to that Samaritan woman. And Jesus was reaching out to her and he broke through to the woman at the well, regardless of racial differences. Jesus was saying... I've come for all people, not just for the Jewish people. I've come for all people. Race is not a hindrance to my love. Whoever and whatever race they are, they're eligible. They are your neighbor. Jesus loved his neighbor regardless of their sinful background. The woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Jesus interacts. A group of Pharisees were trying to, in one sense, entrap Jesus. They always tried to entrap him. But he was free of it. Uh, praise God. And so they brought this woman up to him and they said, Jesus, we caught her. You've, you've heard this. We've shared in the act of adultery. Yes, you know what that means. We caught her in bed. We caught her. Come on, Jesus. What are you going to do? And uh, Jesus defended her. But not defending her in order to defend her sin. But he, he, he wrote on the ground. He rebuked the men. They left eventually because he said, who is without sin, cast the first stone. And then Jesus, the only one that could have judged her, said, woman, you're forgiven. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus broke through. I mean, you see this all throughout. The woman with the alabaster jar of perfume, right? Um, which we'll see in the next story. Jesus, okay, so Jesus loved regardless of racial differences. Jesus loved regardless of sinful background. And Jesus loved his neighbor regardless of social standing. Praise His holy name. 
Matthew chapter 26, 6 through 13 says this, and I'll go into this one. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. That's all I'm going to say right now. Uh, I don't know if you understand this, uh, what a leper is. But if you look from the Old Testament and, and the law, the Levitical uh, law that came out, uh, the unclean person, the skin diseased, leprous person held a cloth over their face and said, unclean, unclean. What a humiliating, terrible, terrible thing. And they were isolated from other people. The social standing of a leper was not high. The social standing of a leper was low. Now, most likely Simon had been healed. And that's interesting, isn't it? If we think about our own lives, many of you have been healed and you've gotten a new identity from God. Praise his name, huh? But others still see you as the leper. Jesus doesn't see you that way. You see, Jesus interacted with this man regardless of his social standing. He said, I will elevate your position (laughs) by interacting with you. I'm not concerned about my own position. You see, Jesus, though he was rich for our sakes, became poor so that through his poverty, we might be made rich. What is Jesus doing throughout his life? He is loving his neighbor. And he's teaching us how to do it. He's taking us out of the old covenant way of isolate yourself, look down upon, right? That wasn't God's original intent, but that's the way the Israelites um, had perverted it by the time the Pharisees came along, right? But isolate, pull back, stay separate to penetrate, interact, engage, love, and break through. The mightiest force on earth is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those redeemed people who have given their hearts to Jesus and loved Him with all their hearts. And so Jesus is showing us how to love our neighbor. I want to ask Jacqueline Wittemeyer to come up. And I just want to say a couple of things as she's walking up. She's going to share with us a a testimony of this. True holiness, this is what I want to say. True holiness, and holiness is love. True holiness does not absorb the environment around it, right? If you're going to a party, you know, I just want to go and, you know, uh, minister to, what, what would you say? Let's say a guy. I just want to go minister to strippers and see them set free. Well, if you're not clean of it, if you don't have a heart to be clean of it, <laughs> that's not holiness, right? I'm saying, or, you know, somebody, if, if we're not clean, if we're going to the party and we're desiring the, the lusts and cares of the flesh. That's not true holiness. But true holiness, empowered by God from the inside, changes and transforms the environment it's in. We become, as I've said before, spiritual thermostats instead of spiritual thermometers. We change the very atmosphere we're in to holiness and love when we do that. And um, so uh, what will mark us as individuals and in the church in this city is how we love a wide strata of people. How does the church love? To love is to call people into a holy relationship with God. It does not mean, um, you know, go ahead and everybody sin and, and, you know, that's okay with God. It's a loving people in such a way that empowers them to repent, turn to Jesus and come out. Jacqueline has a, has, um, I've asked her to come and to share about her blog recently in order to show us what the true love looks like Uh, And what I believe God's calling each one of us to act upon and us as a church to act upon in our city to set Boston on fire for Jesus. Come on up, Jacqueline. Ah, you've got it. Great. Why don't you share with us from your blog?
Thank you. Um, so I'm Jacqueline, and I was just going to share a story about my neighbor, my actual neighbor, um, Kathleen. Um, so Kathleen was my neighbor, and she taught me how to literally love my neighbor. She didn't teach me by example or by inspiration to be a better person. She taught me with herself. To be honest, she was one of the most difficult people I've ever known. Um, I'm not going to give examples, but some of you have met her and understand what I'm talking about. Um, she was constantly making requests, taking a mile when they only offered begrudgingly an inch. She knocked at my door at the most inopportune times. She was a taker. She just was taking, taking, taking. But she took my heart to a place that it had never been before, a place of loving the hard to love. For the past two years, Kathleen lived down the hall. With her uncanny ability to know the moment my children fell asleep and the glacial pace at which she sipped her tea, like it took her forever, um, we spent many long afternoons together. Most of the time, I was an unwilling participant. I would sit there and nod my head to the same stories, stifle my yawns, and try to pretend I cared. I was supposed to care, right? Isn't that how to love a trying neighbor? You pretend that you care about them? Um, but Kathleen could see right through me. She knew exactly when my interest was genuine and when it was fake. And I knew that she knew. So although every part of me wanted to lock the door, ignore my phone, and forget her out of my life, God quietly and firmly told me otherwise. He told me, answer the phone every time she calls, which was hard. Um, I realized that if I was going to love my neighbor as Jesus commanded, I had to move past the pretense and actually love. So I tried really hard for a week, and I was exhausted, burnt out, and resentful. There was no reward, there was no relief, no resolve, just work. So I complained about her one evening, as I did often, to my husband, and he was exasperated, and he wisely said, if you don't want to spend time with her, then don't. But God probably put her in your life for a reason. Thanks, honey. <laughs> Didn't let me off the hook. So I was really reluctant, but I spent the next morning praying for her. But this time, instead of praying that God would change her needs, I prayed that God's love would go through me onto her. And it did. In his grace, he showed me a picture of her heart. It was wrapped in layer upon layer of barbed wire. It was a tangled, messy, painful wall of protection that she had put up by herself. And by his grace, he gave me the desire and the supernatural power to start unwinding it. Every time we got together, which was often, he prompted me to ask if I could pray for her. Sometimes she would let me, and other times she wouldn't. But she always knew it was coming. And it was an exasperating and slow process. And I won't pretend that I was a selfless, joy-filled, loving neighbor all the time. But every time I had no more energy or grace or love to give, God would fill me so full, so full, that I could only overflow onto her. It was, I don't know how to describe it as, it was just so beautiful and such a lavish display of God's pursuit. He just pursued her through me, and it was an honor to witness. Just five months ago, Kathleen's heart seemed as hard as it had ever been. All this barbed wire that I thought was coming off seemed right back on there. Um, but a month later, the day after the Boston Marathon bombings, she settled herself on my couch and said, I have cancer. I have cancer bad. 
She told me she had been diagnosed with cancer at almost exactly the same time that I had moved in down the hall two years before. Not wanting to lose her hair or her beauty to chemo or radiation, the day after, oh, she had declined treatment. So sitting on my couch a year and a half later, the cancer had spread everywhere, and she was dying. She asked me to pray for her. So I jumped up, eager at the request, and she put up her hand and said, but if you pray for God to heal me, I will leave immediately. I don't want to be healed. I want peace. So I prayed for her. I prayed for her spirit to know the Lord, um, for her heart to have peace. And I told her for the first time that I loved her. From her hospital bed, she called me one morning not long ago. Before I could even say good morning, she rushed, I want to know Jesus. I want to know him now. So then and there over the phone, while my children played with blocks beside me, Kathleen came to know Christ and accept his saving grace. It was a beautiful moment that was soon interrupted by a sharp question. Are you still going to visit me? I was confused. I responded, yeah, of course, if you want me to. She said, oh, good. She was relieved. I thought you were just my friend because I was another soul for the Lord. But I really want to see you. And strangely enough, I wanted to see her too. Two weeks ago, my kids and I went to visit her. Her eyes were peaceful and she was ready to go. We prayed together. Her prayer was simple, short, and took me aback. She thanked the Lord for me. Sorry. Last Tuesday, Kathleen passed away. Her body was done. She was only 60. But her spirit had gone into eternity. I was and I am surprised by my tears. They're not just a few pretty drops, but they were faucets flowing because my neighbor, my friend who I loved, was gone. It's so hard to grieve and rejoice at the same time. I know she's dancing, worshiping, feasting, smiling, but in the midst of that celebration, if she happens to take her eyes off of our glorious king for just a moment and sees the tears on my face, she will see that she was truly loved on this earth and that she's taught me one of the greatest lessons of all, to love others for no other reason than because God is love. And yesterday as I was praying for this, I felt like God wanted me to share this word that truly loving others, especially those who are difficult, is not a natural thing to do or to desire. But we are children of God, and in him we are supernatural. Kathleen came to experience God's passionate love, not because I was a good neighbor, but because he is a good God. Praise God. I, um, wow. Uh, well, we want to respond, and we're just going to take about five minutes to respond. We could already, I see tears in the audience or in the congregation, whatever you want to call it. But I think the best way for us to respond is to pray. And uh, we're going to get in groups of four or five. You don't have to pray if you don't want to, but we're going to get in groups of four and five. 
and pray for our neighbors. Pray for those we come in contact with. Some of them may be folks you've had a hard heart toward. I, I struggle with the problem of the hard heart. God's softening me. But let's take some time and let's love our neighbors in the way of prayer. And let's ask God out of this time, how can we love our neighbors as Jesus loved them? You know, what would it look like if each one of us began to care for everyone in our portion of our, in the portion of our city, our literal neighbors, classmates, work associates, as the Samaritan cared for the man on the road? What if we chose to love our natural enemies politically, religiously, ethnically, and morally without partiality? What if we became a church body increasingly known in our city as those who are neighbors to everyone in our city? We hold unflinchingly to our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and Him being the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to heaven. Yet, we get involved to a greater degree than ever before in the needs that we pass by each and every day. The doors of the gospel will be opened wide as we take this approach. And many will come in, not due to manipulation, but as Jacqueline said, due to the love of God expressed through you, the church. Let's turn and let's pray. Turn to fours and fives around you and let's, let's just begin to pray for our city as the band plays.